This evening I'd like to explore how metta works and how in practicing metta it works on us and we work through some of the challenges or difficulties or obstacles to metta and it all works. <laughs> We're working we're working through, it's working. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about some of the main ways that uh, metta works, and in particular look at some of the challenges, a lot of which have surfaced for all of us on these uh, first two days. Uh, first I wanted to say some about the spirit of metta, the spirit of our practice. And I wanted to um, First, look to some uh, major experts in metta. This, these are um, a group of uh, four to eight-year-olds who were asked by a group of professionals, I think professional psychologists, what does love mean? So the spirit of metta. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> Some of you, when you're sitting, your eyelashes do go up, and I know, I know mine do. People tell me. <laughs> People tell me that. And little stars, that's the metta, right? So very, very precocious. That was Karen, age seven. This is Marianne, age four. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. <laughs> Billy, age four. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Another uh, way that has really inspired me uh, of understanding the spirit of metta comes from a story that I actually first heard from my mother um, at a metta retreat a few years ago. And she and my father had come to visit. Uh, my mother grew up like half a block from Sylvia's husband. And they didn't know each other. They were separated by about six or eight years or something, but um, anyway, they, they came to visit and during um, one of our retreats. And she told me a story of um, a particular time uh, during the presidential campaign in 1972 involving uh, Shirley Chisholm and uh, George Wallace. Some of you may know that history. Uh, Shirley Chisholm was the first African-American woman congressman. I, she, I know she was the first African-American woman candidate for president. I think she, she was, there were quite a, she wasn't the first woman congressperson. And she was from Brooklyn and I actually met her a number of times because when I was in college one summer I worked in the U.S. Congress. I was having, I thought I'd have the intention to go into politics and didn't quite work out. <laughs> so, uh, but I met her a number of times and uh, she was very small. She was, I think, less than five feet. And she was the congresswoman from, from one of the districts in Brooklyn. And in 1972, she was running for president, as was George Wallace, who was at that time an arch uh, segregationist from Alabama. And he was more or less running a campaign that people would say would be linked kind of with the, um, kind of like a racist backlash happening in the country at that time. And um, during that campaign, there was an assassination attempt on Wallace, as some of you may know. And he was, um, he was shot and eventually led to him being paralyzed. And he was in the hospital and Shirley Chisholm 
went to visit him not long after he was shot. And his first comment was, your people aren't going to like the fact that you're visiting me. And her response was, I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. And what's very remarkable is it's a lot of how we practice with metta is quite mysterious. Sometimes we can feel frustrated, you know, we do metta all day and we are sleepy and have a headache or something, you know, or sometimes it's like that. Or we contemplate um, how many days are left and we're, we're completely sure that We've been here for more than two days. <laughs> so it's mysterious. And what happened after that visit? I don't know the exact causality, but about two years later, she was working on a minimum wage bill and she really needed the support of um, Southern Congress people. George Wallace helped her. And the bill won. And I think some of you know that um, Wallace later renounced his racism. And in the years before he died, I think in 1995, he was actually a force for reconciliation. It's hard to know the cause and effect, but I have to think that that was a very simple moment of metta. And it was, I think it was very powerful, powerful in the world, you know. And those kind of stories inspire me. I can feel my, you know, I can feel my innards moving, <laughs> you know. It's quite, and maybe you too. Maybe one more, one more uh, account that I really like of how, uh, how, how Metta works. And this is from uh, this isn't exactly about metta, but I think it's very much in the spirit of metta. It's from the uh, Cree native people in, um, you know, who live in kind of northern Minnesota and southern, um, southern Canada. It's from a series of really of um, poems and chants called the Wishing Bone Cycle. And I think it's about the, how we really practice metta. All the nights, sleep in moonlight. Keep letting it go into you. Do this all your life. Do this and you will shine outward in old age. The moon will think that you are the moon. So it's something like that. We're practicing and there's this heart of metta, which we keep on um, in a sense, sleeping with, acting with, being with that, that moon, or sometimes we use the metaphor of the sun, and we slowly, that light, that light pervades us. And we can feel moments of shining, but over time, we come to shine. So how does, how does that shining develop? How do we come to shine? And the first two days, you may not have felt like you were shining. Some of you. I know from talking with people that that, that, that is occurring for some, and for some it's occurring uh, at times. Uh, so how does it occur? Well, I want to uh, talk about how metta works in four ways and then link that with how uh, difficulties arise and we can work, work through them. And so the first way that metta works is that we learn how to, I would say, lead more with our hearts. Uh, a second way is that we develop concentration, which tends to uh, center the mind, and a concentrated mind tends to shine. A third way that metta works is that we, in many ways, we purify our being. We both work through 
certain aspects of ourselves which are which maybe obscure our shining quality, sometimes from old wounds or from different ways that we may be confused or caught in old patterns. And we also purify ourselves by deliberately invoking beautiful states like metta. And then the last uh, quality of how metta works is we tend more and more to uh, touch our depths. And my own experience is that in our depths, there's a lot of metta. And as we touch our depths more and more, the metta comes to shine more. So not a linear process, quite a mysterious process, and I'll talk about that some. So first, we we learn how to lead with our hearts. And for many of us, we weren't uh, brought up to lead with our hearts. I think some of us may have been, some of us may have found that easy. For myself, that wasn't the case. Growing up as a a man in 20th century North America, mm -mm. (laughs) mm-mm. It's a Buddhist technical term. (laughs) Uh, Means no way. Um, And so I was really, I was really brought up to basically think a lot. And even though I think my nature actually is to have uh, a pretty warm heart, I, and for that to come out sometimes, still, because I, I know that when, like, when I was in teenager doing, you know, studying driver ed, the movies really affected me emotionally, more than most boys, you know, or just just seeing, I know, I know I would sometimes cry during movies and other boys wouldn't. So I knew there was something there, but still I was thinking all the time. And it really was, um, uh, and I wasn't so, you know, I, I would say I wasn't so conscious of my heart and not, not so conscious of my body, even though I had been an athlete. I was a, a swimmer, competitive swimmer for 10 years. Really helped with meditation practice. I haven't, I haven't talked about that much. But it's, uh, it's actually interesting because it's a lot about keeping on going when it's painful and all the voices in the mind are saying, stop. And there's something about, something about those of you who've done different kinds of athletics or probably musical training or dance or something like that, I think it's quite similar. And so, but I was really more uh, trained to think, and really I would say I would lead with my mind or lead with my thinking, and quite common. And so for me to learn uh, metta practice or to, uh, and it wasn't just metta practice, it was a lot of, lot of uh, series of practices and learning on all sorts of different levels, uh, close relationships and so forth, could bring out the heart more. But metta has really been significant. and. I wanted to tell one story that, for me, really um, really brought out that sense of leading with the heart even more fully. It was about four years ago. I did a, a long metta retreat, about five weeks of metta. You've done two days, so <laughs> think, what? Uh, 33 more days. <laughs> but it was, and it was sometimes challenging, but as I was doing that practice, um, I started noticing, because when one does it a lot, as you, as you may tell, there's kind of like, you get in a meta groove eventually. And it's, it's almost like anything which is not metta, almost like gets noticed by consciousness. It's kind of like Sylvia was saying, is there kindness in the mind or not? And as I was doing more metta and um, fairly concentrated, <coughs> I would notice just the slightest movement that was not metta, uh, especially um, judgments of self, harsh judgments of self or other. But even I would notice even just neutral observations, like that person is walking slowly, or that person is um, um, eating, has a lot on his or her plate. 
people are kind of tending towards the judgment territory. <laughs> but um, but I would I would find that even when I would go to something more neutral, it would feel off to me. That I really wanted to have that sense of kindness there almost every moment, like Sylvia was saying. And it was with that support of a retreat, sometimes that's more possible. And so when I would find myself even making a neutral observation, I would correct myself. I would say, I have to do a few uh, rounds of metta for that person or for that situation. That felt like I would kind of come back to balance. And I don't say that so much as something like as to compare yourself to, but just more to illustrate that uh, that sense of coming to lead with the heart. And it's a beautiful process. I know that we all do that, especially in certain situations. You know that when we're with a friend in distress. I'm sure that many or most or all of us, in a sense, lead with our heart. You know, I found when my father was dying, I was tremendously drawn to do a variant of metta, which is a Tonglen practice, which is a Tibetan practice, which is very similar. One breathes in a certain amount of pain, and one breathes out kindness and release and relief. And I was, I was doing that for hours, just being with my father often as he was dying. It, was very, it, was, it became very natural. And it was like, and I told him about that. I told him I was, I'm doing Tong Lin, and I told him what it was. I think he knew about it some. Because he, he meditated the last 25 years of his life. It was really, really sweet. And I, I told him that. And this was like five days before he died. And a big smile came across his face. So that sense of leading with the heart is something that we, we can find in many, many variants. I was thinking of, uh, some of you know Julia Butterfly Hill. She says, let me ask the question, is my action coming out of love? That's leading with our hearts. That's really what we do uh, with metta. We practice that. We really train. I ho- and I hope you think of this as a training. This isn't a performance school to perform metta. This is really a training, and we go through whatever we go through. Or this would be uh, Gandhi uh, continually having the devotional practice of saying Ram, the name of God, I think with, with a loving quality, moment after moment. And those of you who've seen the Gandhi film know that at the moment of his death, all that came out was Ram. I think you know that. You know that. This was his practice of leading with the heart. It's that sense of an intention practice that we keep on inclining our minds towards metta. We practice learning for that to be more and more present. I think as we come to lead with the heart over time, there is a way in which... uh, as Sylvia was emphasizing, we really come to integrate, we might say, the heart with the mind and the body. That, that um, as metta becomes more mature, it's not so much just the heart as opposed to the mind or as opposed to the wisdom, but in many ways, we come more and more to find that mature metta is wise. It's like this recent book by Jack Kornfield called The Wise Heart. And metta, leading with our heart, has to become more and more wise. If we just lead with the heart without wisdom, that's not so helpful quite often. And so we come more and more to, to integrate that, those together. One of the beautiful ways that that gets expressed in the context of Buddhist practice is that metta is traditionally presented as one of four practices called the Brahma-vihara, or translated as the divine abodes. Many of you know these practices. Uh, The others are compassion, appreciative or sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And in many ways, it's suggested that they come as a package that if metta doesn't have some of the qualities of compassion and joy and equanimity, and equanimity is especially the, the wisdom factor, it's not really mature. In the same way, the other qualities have to have plenty of metta. 
This is what uh, uh, wonderful uh, German scholar Nyona Ponikatera says about that relationship between metta and equanimity in particular. He says, metta imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. For fervor, too, transformed as part of perfect equanimity. Equanimity then, in turn, gives to, gives to love or metta an uneven, let me take, go back. Equanimity gives to love an even, unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great virtue of patience. It's that patience which lets us be with the challenges and with the difficulties. That's really, in large part, the wisdom factor. And I think we'll be continually talking about that balance of, of metta and wisdom. The second way that we develop in metta is that we become, over time, more concentrated. Metta is technically a concentration practice. And it's used sometimes for the development of deep uh, concentration known as the jhanas, or absorption states. One can do that actually with phrases. Using metta and the sense, the inner sense of metta can lead one into very, very deep concentration. Here we know it as the way that when we keep on repeating the phrases, it tends to concentrate the mind. It's like a continual prayer, or in some sense, like a mantra somewhat. We repeat it, and it's not easy, but we can find that the mind tends to be concentrated and tends to go into a certain uh, groove after a while. When one does metta at a certain point, it becomes just a, a, actually an easy groove that one just rides with almost, that one, one moves with. And what's interesting about concentration is that I think that the English term isn't quite adequate to the term that we have in the Pali and Sanskrit language, which some of you know is samadhi. And it really is connected etymologically more with words meaning a bringing together or a gathering, a kind of integration. Sometimes when we use the word concentration, it can be a kind of a somewhat disembodied, laser-like use of the mind to penetrate whatever it's trying to get into. I know I use meditation like that for a lot of years. But here the concentration is more of a gathering of all our energies and it's more relaxed and less, less, uh, less separating one part of ourselves from another. You know, less separating the mind to be with the breath, less separating the mind to be with the phrases. And it's something, as we do it more, we can try to have that be more a sense of... Um, <coughs> of relaxed, almost uh, letting the concentration be there. And I know for myself, partly from using concentration, I think in, in my first years of practice, more in that laser-like way, which was connected with a general upbringing to be disembodied, <laughs> uh, that actually I developed, uh, I did a long retreat, and I actually had some problems from that. And I actually, for about two or three years, I couldn't really uh, concentrate in that way, so to speak. I couldn't do that. And so, in fact, I actually, for about two or three years, I didn't work with my breath at all. And I kind of knew that what was happening, that was I actually had certain kind of head pressure, kind of an energetic imbalance that developed from over-strenuous concentration. And I had to actually have a few years, and I knew myself that this was actually really good. <laughs> that I would actually learn how to concentrate in a much more relaxed way and just let the concentration be more from uh, being present and not trying so hard. So that maybe you can uh, take that and see if you can let the concentration maybe come more with your whole body almost and more, more with a sense of being present and less, less a kind of striving. It's a kind of relaxed way that we are really unifying ourselves. And there's something quite beautiful from just all we do all day is repeat the phrases. Some of you, that may be driving you half mad. Is anyone, anyone that happy? Okay, a few. Um, 
But after a while, it settles down. It's actually uh, very simple. You do mindfulness practice, insight meditation, all sorts of choices all the time. You know, what should I do? Should I pay attention to this? Should I shift my attention? Should I do this? Should I do that? Metta, one road, <laughs> one path. And, and there can be a certain beauty in that. There's a simplicity. There can be a settling down and a unification of mind that occurs. Um, there's a passage from Kierkegaard that I, that's really influenced me for a long time. It, it said, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. It's about that unification of our being, that, that in which we know, we, we in a sense know what we're doing. And so sometimes the lack of concentration makes metta harder. There's an interesting passage from uh, the Russian Orthodox tradition uh, where there's a teacher named Theophane, Theophane from the 19th century, and he said, uh, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. Dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. It really points to the way that the kind of the mind and heart of metta have that gathered, that gathered quality. And of course, we find, particularly in the first two days, that concentration is hard. And we can find that we don't have that settled quality so much. We may find ourselves distracted. We may find ourselves sleepy. We may find ourselves restless. It's actually possible to have all of them occur at once. We have a technical term here at Spirit Rock for that. We call it the multiple hindrance attack. And, and it's possible for all of them to happen. But let me go one by one, just <laughs> through them. So the main one that, probably that I know from talking with people, that's very natural, even for very experienced meditators, is a certain amount of sleepiness. And it's quite natural for many of us after we've uh, sometimes come a long way, sometimes had to do a lot in order to get here. Sometimes uh, we're at the end almost of an emotional cycle where we've gone through a lot and we sort of plump ourselves down here and we say, okay, Time to just see what that was about, or to invite a certain resting or healing, or um, seeing what's there. And sometimes that 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 stopping of the momentum from before the retreat can really just lead to a certain amount of sleepiness. So it's very very natural. I think I'm sure that all of us have been saying that continually. That that sleepiness is fine. Experienced meditators are sleepy. The Dalai Lama, with certain conditions, nods off. <laughs> I haven't seen that happen, but <laughs> making an assumption there. But the, and the sleepiness can manifest in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's a lack of energy. Sometimes a drowsiness. Sometimes it just is a kind of a, a fogginess of mind. One of the very interesting ways that sleepiness or lack of attention manifests is in uh, actually uh, basically messing up the phrases. Has anyone found yourself saying the phrases wrong, or although you've said them all day long, you forget what they are? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? No, you forget. Okay, you've, been, you've said them like 2,800 times, but here it is the afternoon. What's that third phrase? <laughs> and, and sometimes we we say them in ways that actually can be really humorous. And actually, I, for me, it, it actually is, helps me come awake that uh, sometimes we say phrases like one, when I did the, I, I actually wrote down some of the ways that I did this during my longer metta retreat. Like my first phrase is, may I be happy and contented? And so the way that came out sometimes was, may I be happy and cemented? <laughs> Or my last phrase is, may, may I be free and live with ease? And that became, may I be free and live with lice? <laughs> my, my second phrase is, may I be safe and free from harm? And that became, may I be safe and free from home? 
Maybe at the end of the retreat, we'll see who has the best. We call this, who has the best phrases or the best, we call this sometimes the meta model. And so um, what, to do, what to do with sleepiness? There really are, are three main reasons for sleepiness in the context of retreat. One of them, of course, is that we simply need rest from a physical perspective. And some, some of us have known that and we've taken steps a second reason sometimes is that there can be, if we have extended sleepiness, even when we're not tired, it sometimes can be because there can be a certain resistance to being present or to being with some content of experience. And if that's the case, you can sometimes work and look into that often with, with one of one's teachers and can really look because sometimes it's like our being doesn't want to go somewhere and it's, it's just similar to the way we don't want to have a conversation with a partner or with a coworker, And so we just kind of distract ourselves. We just kind of go somewhere else. And it's, it's pretty similar. And the third reason that we might be sleepy is sometimes that there can be an imbalance of uh, concentration and energy. And sometimes we may not have enough energy. And the concentration can sometimes be pretty good. But if we don't have enough um, energy, that will manifest as sleepiness. And that suggests, and that, that is one of the main causes of sleepiness other than the physical cause for most of us. So that suggests ways to work with the sleepiness. Uh, first is to just uh, be aware that we're sleepy and actually to try to be mindful if you can. Try to notice the sleepiness. This sleepiness is very, very mysterious. You know, last time I checked, which was a while ago, scientists actually don't know on a biochemical basis why we sleep. It's very mysterious. And why we shift consciousness in this way is quite mysterious. But we can actually find ourselves, as, as many of you know, in a retreat, one moment really sleepy and having been sleepy for the last hour, and then a split second later, wide awake. It's quite mysterious. So it's very helpful to notice that there is uh, sleepiness. Try to just try to be with it. Um, other things to do can increase the energy. Sit up straight, take deep breaths, do vigorous walking, uh, can do yoga sometimes to build up the energy. Um, Jack Kornfield was sleepy in his practice in Thailand and his teacher had him sit by the edge of a well that went down 50 feet. <laughs> we haven't really built uh, any, any wells here, but we don't use that technique here. <laughs> another, another thing to look at is just, is, uh, that's actually mentioned in the uh, commentaries, the ancient commentaries, is moderation in eating. So being moderate in your eating can actually play a role in and whether we're sleepy or not. And the, the opposite, or the, the really the, uh, the other way that we can um, lack concentration is when our minds get very, very restless. And restlessness can also be uh, for a number of different reasons. Sometimes it can be through distraction and the mind being very active because we have things in our mind that are troubling us. Sometimes it can be kind of the opposite uh, imbalance of concentration and energy. Sometimes we have too much energy and not enough concentration. And so sometimes in a meditative context, if you're feeling really restless, a lot of the mind's going like this, sometimes it's like energy is being generated by the practice, but we need to develop some more concentration. And so that way you might really focus more on the metta, you might do uh, some work with mindfulness and work with the breaths or count the breaths. Uh, you might, uh, again, moderation in eating is recommended in the commentaries. <laughs> for It's actually for every problem, moderation in eating <laughs> is recommended. Uh, and so as we do that, as we work with these challenges, sleepiness, distraction, restlessness that, that takes us from being concentrated, we can work with those and have patience knowing that that really leads us to develop further 
that quality of concentration. And as we, as we do that, uh, we enter into the more concentrated mind, which is quite beautiful and quite mysterious. Uh, it's said that one of the unfathomables of human life is to know the depths of the concentrated mind. And it's quite beautiful, and I know for myself, exploring deeper concentration has really brought a lot of uh, beauty and mystery and inspiration, because it, it, as we get more concentrated, it opens us up into a sense of human nature, of the nature of our minds and hearts and bodies, that sometimes is uh, uh, almost um, unimaginable, unimaginable from previous perspectives. And it really is quite amazing that what happens when the mind gets more quiet and still. And I think all of us, I'm sure, have touched that, touched some quality of peace or uh, uh, resting or quality of, the, of love and the open heart, stillness. And I think those moments actually, I think, keep us coming back. They're quite important. We don't want to so much hang on to them, but they can really inspire us. We know those moments. We know what's humanly possible. And as we practice more, they get more and more common, not in a linear way, unfortunately, <laughs> but they get more common and they get, tend to get more stabilized over time. So as we do that, we develop a certain quality with concentration of ease, of relaxation, of steadiness, of stillness. As the mind gets more concentrated, there can be that quality of joy and rapture in the mind and body. We can have a sense of really being, being unified and having that sense of a just a very firm presence with the open heart on the earth. Very, very simple. I think like Shirley Chisholm going to visit George Wallace, it's just the only thing that's there is just this, I'm, I'm guessing, it's just this open heart and kindness. And we can be like that as the mind gets more concentrated. A third aspect of metta practice, a third way in which metta works, is what we might call purification. And if that word is problematic for anyone, I invite you to choose another one that's, that's close to it. I know that talking about purity and impurity can be charged and not really feels like a good, like good language for some people. So it could be something like um, transformation might be a more neutral word. Um, but I'll use purification here, and I'll use it in two ways, as I, as I mentioned earlier. One is that as we practice, we tend to um, open up to what stands in the way of metta. And we touch that. In a sense, we are not deliberately saying, come here, all that stands in the way of metta, and make your appearance. <laughs> We're not really saying that, but you know, it happens. And that's one way that there's purification. The other is that we deliberately go towards this quality of kindness and love. That's a kind of pure, we're going in a sense towards a very simple, uh, what Kierkegaard called that purity of heart. And we're deliberately invoking, we might say we're deliberately invoking the beautiful. We're deliberately invoking uh, wonderful, what we might call awakened states. And those are two, two ways in which uh, purification can happen. This is, uh, Picasso said this about art. Art washes away from the soul the dust of everyday life. Art washes away from the soul the dust of everyday life. And metta, in a sense, does that. You know, again, you could, instead of purification, you could say scrubbing of the soul or scrubbing of our being. <coughs> and there's a lot that happens when we sit here, and I think many of us know this, that we have, that we find as teachers, for example, that there's often on metta retreats, 
more stirred up, in a sense, than on uh, mindfulness retreats. That's, that's often the case. And we can have, um, on Nutta retreats, quite strong dreams sometimes. Some of you may have had strong, even violent dreams, quite horrific dreams that, that come. And if you've had those, just know that that's very normal. If you have something like that, it doesn't mean that there's some deep inner area that you need to work out or that there are a lot of problems or that you're a basically violent person or something like that. It, it really comes with the territory. And there are powerful ways in which uh, the dream life can be very, very active. You know, we actually were talking this morning over breakfast about dreams. You might wonder what we talk about when we go there in the yurt. You know? <laughs> we were, this morning we were talking about dreams and uh, actually shared quite a number of dreams. Uh, but, I, but one of them was one that I had had just last night, which, which uh, did involve it kind of, I felt like it went back almost like into the uh, collective violence of the past. You know, and it didn't feel so personal, but it was like some, I, uh, the first scene, it was a little complicated, so I won't explain the whole context, but I was, um, uh, I was watching an image of a small town in Germany in the 1920s with those old style cars going around. And those of you who are therapists, you can leave your interpretations on notes. <laughs> Or whatever, but um, I was, I was um, watching. I was looking at this small town in Germany, and it was it was circled around a dark, very very dark lake, and I was sitting there knowing that this huge monster was going to come out of the dark lake, and I connected that with the Nazis, in my in my 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 sense of it, you know. And in the same dream, I actually had a dream also related to uh, Native Americans and sort of the, um, kind of the near genocide of Native Americans because I went on another road. The road from Germany led to like Oklahoma. <laughs> How dreams work. And I was in this land and uh, a friend was saying, well, we, there are a lot of Comanches here. And I said, no, they're gone. It was like the 1930s, and they're gone, and I, you know, and so there was a kind of sadness that, that I woke with related to that. And so dreams can open us up to the personal shadow, we might say, or the collective shadow, and that happens, and we have to know that we can have a lot of powerful things happening in our bodies. Sometimes we can feel a lot of sensation around the heart when we do metta. Sometimes we can feel the heart as being stiff and like a wall or like something very, very hard. And we can feel that and it can be uncom quite uncomfortable at times. And sometimes we feel energy moving around the heart and other places in our body. And there are those kind of shifts. Sometimes we have emotions come and events come without any clear reason as we sit metta. I remember during my long metta retreat that I did, one morning, at three in the morning, I suddenly woke up, sat up straight in bed, and reviewed my entire intimate relationship history <laughs> for two hours. And then I went back to sleep. <laughs> and I hadn't been thinking about it on the retreat. And it just sort of arrived, announced itself with this incredible power, stayed for two hours, and left. And I didn't think about it after that. Uh, and some of it was painful, as, as it is probably for many of us. And, and so it, these things happen. And, and there's a way in which we invite that quality of love and we, we open that process, we open up that process of purification. There are two ways I want to mention in particular connected with purification that are related to very common ways that metta gets uh, obscured or made, made more difficult. One of them is the way that metta becomes linked with um, a kind of 
possessive love or a kind of attached love, a kind of uh, more compulsive desire. And the other way is, is uh, the other aspect of the heart that gets worked on a lot is a certain kind of aversion or a aversion or hatred or judgment of ourselves and others. Both of these tend to come up and they're important for meta practice. So I want to mention both of them. And they're actually related to a wonderful concept that the Buddha developed for the, uh, for the divine abodes, the Brahma Vihara of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. He said that each of those has both an opposite and something that looks kind of like it, but is distorted. It masquerades. He called the first the far enemy, and he called the second the near enemy. And so, for example, the um, near enemy of metta would be this kind of attached or possessive love. It, kind of, it can look like metta, it can look like love, but there's something distorted about it. And the far enemy is hatred. Or for compassion, the far enemy, the opposite would be cruelty, something like that. And the near enemy would be pity. It can look like compassion, but there can be a sense of superiority or distance. It can look like compassion. And so working, in a sense, with both of those is an important part of meta practice. So we can look at that sense of whether it's not something it's to be that really is so always so obvious. Sometimes that can be quite subtle, but it's something to look at in our, uh, in our practice, just to notice. It might be to reflect from time to time. Is there, are there ways in which the metta has an attached quality or a compulsive quality? or a, a possess, possessive quality. Or it might be that we are overly identified with it because the quality of metta that we're really moving towards is really more like metta as the sun that simply shines, that simply shines on ourselves and on others and isn't so much, uh, isn't so much a matter of an exchange. You know, I will have metta for you if you do these things for me. That's, that's not the, the spirit of metta. And so we, we have to look at that. We have to look at that here and we have to look at that in our lives. It might be that that one sense of love is, is possessive or it may be that I have love if I'm a caregiver or a teacher or a therapist only if the person actually does what I think should happen. You know, is my, is my love conditional? Is it, and Sylvia was talking yesterday about that quality of unconditional love. For it might be that I have a very narrow circle. I give love here, but I don't give love to others. I have that very small circle of friends, you know. And the spirit of metta is to widen that circle, is to have that quality of our heart be, again, something that we lead with. So how do we work with that if we find that quality? The first is just to be aware of it, is just to notice. Is my metta towards this person, towards one of my uh, figures that I give metta towards, is, it, is there any a quality of possessiveness or a quality of attachment? Is there a quality of uh, sort of, of self-centeredness that's connected with it? In the world, we can work with, uh, sometimes with uh, gift giving, for example, can be a wonderful way sometimes just to work with that more selfless quality of, of love or metta. It's really developing the qualities of gratitude or generosity can really work to develop that more uh, very open quality of, of metta. The, the quality of aversion perhaps is stronger and more obvious for us. That quality in which things come up in our mind where we have aversion for other people here, 
that we might find ourselves angry, we might find ourselves having a lot of aversion. You know, that Dharma talk really wasn't very good. You know, he, t he used the same stories as last year, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and we can find our mind getting, getting aversive. One of the main ways that uh, that far enemy of aversion or hatred appears in our minds that's less a quality of some very strong hatred is in judgment of ourselves and others. And that, that's something that's quite pervasive in our culture and that really is something that we, many of us can notice on this retreat quite a bit. How many of you have noticed some significant self-judgment on this retreat? Yeah. It's very strong in our culture, it's, it's powerful, and it's something that we can keep on noticing. For me, it's been actually a very important part of my practice has, has been to work with the judgmental mind. And in fact, I'm working on a book on that right now. To, to, and so, you know, I actually know that some of you know that I've been leading monthly groups on working with judgments for six years and working with a lot of people, including several people at this retreat. And it's been very, very powerful to look at that more and to really work with it. And metta is one of the primary tools that we use. And it's really in working with those kind of harsh judgments of self and other, we can work in using actually several tools. Metta is an incredibly powerful tool to really offer ourselves that quality of metta and build that as a resource. And it becomes an incredible tool both to develop a sense of our own beauty and tune into our own beauty and also be a very powerful antidote at certain moments when we have self-judgment attacks. And, you know, and they often come, uh, the hardest ones often come when we're quite vulnerable. And what to do when those come is notice that they're there, use the mindfulness to notice that they're there. And then one can just go towards the metta. As the metta gets strong, for example, if I ever have something come up, like I wake up at three in the morning and something's quite been quite distressing and my mind starts going to some groove that feels strong. And 3 a.m. is kind of, for most of us, a vulnerable time. And I could just be mindful and really notice it and inquire and stay with it, but sometimes at 3 a.m. it's wiser just to go with the metta and to really shift the energy and to come back to balance. Ultimately, I think the transformation of those kind of judgments does require mindfulness and insight and actually going more deeply into the roots of it. But it, it becomes one of the, for me, I've seen it's a very, very powerful doorway of transformation that we can notice those judgments. And they're actually, I believe that they carry important information and sometimes a lot of energy, sometimes moral energy sometimes quite important energy, but it gets really caught up with reactivity, especially based on often unconscious, unacknowledged pain from the past. That's what I found, that judgments are very driven by that, those harsh judgments. And what we do over time is we can actually touch some of that pain with metta and with mindfulness. And when we do that, it tends over time to get healed and we free up the positive energy and the intelligence of the judgments. It's quite powerful and fascinating to do that. And that, I think, for many of us, is one of the horizons of metta practice, is to work with that sense of self-judgment. I went through about a six-year period of very intensive work with judgments. One of my main uh, places where I learned a lot was when I was working and I had a boss who was, let me say this in neutral language, <laughs> who was, who, uh, well, he was very self-centered. <laughs> and he didn't, I thought, and many others agreed, he didn't listen very well. And I met with him for two hours every two weeks for two years. I was working with one of my mentors and she suggested this would be a good time for inner work. <laughs> and so I actually worked with this guy and I actually got to explore my judgments because what would typically happen was he was, um, I thought he, I well, 
from a neutral perspective, I would say, I would say something and he would say something quite different after that that had nothing to do with what I said. <laughs> from a less neutral perspective, I would say he wasn't listening at all to what I was saying, even though we were at a meeting. And I would find myself very quickly feeling not heard, not listened to, and I would move to a standpoint of emotionally detached, distanced moral superiority from which I would judge him very harshly. Does anyone ever do that? <laughs> so, but, it was, but I got to study it and it was powerful. And I did this work over a number of years with the help of people, with several guides. And it, it was powerful and fascinating. It took, took me into some of the roots of the judgments. A lot of it is so unconsciously driven. But when we work here, we can notice it with mindfulness and we can work with the metta. That can really be a, one of the powerful tools to work with judgments. And I found after a number of years of working with the judgments and using metta and other tools, that I had a dream one night and I, I noticed in my bedroom there was a picture of myself in one of those Western kind of wanted, like outlaw wanted posters. <laughs> we can talk about dreams in the interviews if you want. <laughs> but, uh, but basically I had this wanted poster of myself that was on, the, on my bedroom wall and it was right up there, you know, like wanted, you know, dangerous character, Donald Rothbard, and had a picture of me. And in the dream I said, at the end of the cycle of judgment work, I think I can take that poster down. Mm. That was the dream. I said, oh, things are shifting. <laughs> so that purification process is quite powerful. It's really, uh, it's really one main way to talk about what we do here. It has its ups and downs. It requires us to be with difficult states and to know that sometimes they come even more than daily life when we open in that way. And the general guideline that we use here is that when there are quite difficult states and they become the foreground, like something like grief or sadness or fear, when they're in the background or of moderate ability, they're just kind of there, we stay with the metta. When they become the foreground, we can shift to mindfulness and give them attention and work with them. That's a general guideline that we use for challenging states. So if you're having a lot of, um, let's say, grief or something like that, and it's really dominant, it's not like you should try to grit on with the, with the metta, but we can actually shift and be with that and work with that state. And when it's no longer dominant, we can go back to the metta. And that's a general guideline. So lastly, as we work with metta, we also touch something uh, deeper in ourselves. And in so many traditions, a sense of love, a sense of kindness is taken to be quite a powerful expression of the whole cosmos. I want to read you a very beautiful passage from, actually two passages from Martin Luther King, which is very much the spirit of Metta. And this is, you know, I... We, ought, we sometimes have the Metta retreat on Martin Luther King's birthday, which is quite something. And we're pretty close to it, you know, close to that and the inauguration. But I wanted to read King talking about love because it really has both that sense of Metta practice of continual attention, intention, and then the sense that it opens us up to something deep. He says this, I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving against wrong when we do it because John was right, God is love. One who hates does not know God, but one who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. One who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. And that's very much the sense in the Buddhist tradition. It said, 
it's said in the tradition that the basic nature of our being has the qualities of luminosity and of kindness and of clarity. That there's a way in which we go more deeply into metta, we open up our own being. And sometimes we can really sit with that sense of being and feel when the mind is concentrated and there's that quality of stillness and clarity, one can feel the sense of warmth there. That's really mentioned in so many, many traditions. You know, in Hindu tradition, it's said that the basic nature of things is sat-chit-ananda, being, knowledge or insight, and bliss or love. This is what the Buddha said. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This those who do not practice do not really understand, and so they don't cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the one who practices really understands, for that person there is cultivation of mind and heart. And in the Buddhist text, there is a sense that that deeper quality of the shining quality of mind and heart is explicitly connected with metta. In the text of the Buddha, one finds that phrase that this is called the brightly shining factor of mind and heart. It's actually in Buddhist tradition, it's a precursor to what's later called Buddha nature. That sense of a, our deeper nature being there. Let me see if I can find this other very wonderful quotation. Yes, it said, the Buddha says, talking about this brightly shining quality, the liberation of the mind and heart by metta shines and glows and radiates and radiates and is like the radiance of the moon, that the quality of our being developed by metta shines and glows and radiates and is like the radiance of the moon. And I want to close with one of my favorite metta passages, which is from the Catholic monk, Thomas Merton. So not really explicitly about metta, but the spirit of metta. And this was from a day when he went, I think he went to the dentist in Louisville. And his monastery uh, was in Kentucky, is in Kentucky, the, the Abbey of Gethsemane. I, I used to live in Kentucky and spend a lot of time at that monastery. It's quite, quite wonderful. And he was just walking in Louisville and he had this sudden opening. It's sometimes the fruit of a lot of spiritual practice. You have these things that happen and they don't make sense why they happen at that time. He had gone to the dentist and he was just walking down the street in Louisville and he had this kind of opening and seeing, I think, with the, um, the, the mind and heart and body of metta. And this is what he wrote about it, and I'll close with this. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is that we would all fall down and worship each other. <laughs> then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality. If only they or we could see ourselves as they really are or we really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem is <clears throat> that we would fall down and worship each other. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.
when you love somebody, including yourself, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. Thank you so much for your attention. We'll have about half an hour of walking meditation, then come back for the sitting and the chanting together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.